Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. I want to take a moment to just speak to you. You know, I was, we're in the midst of a weekend where we celebrate the life, the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I was reading through some of the history of this particular holiday. Every once in a while, people will come to me and they'll, you know, they, they, well, you know, we're past that. Uh, no, we're not. And we still have a long ways to go. And I wanted to share something with you, and I hope it'll be meaningful for many of you. Dr. King was assassinated in April of 1968, and it would take a fairly short time before there was a conversation started about making a federal holiday. And in fact, Michigan Congress, Congressman John Conyers actually brought it up initially. And then it was brought forth by the King Center and several other groups that thought it would be a, a wonderful way to kind of begin a deeper conversation about racial injustice and to remember both what Dr. King stood for and then also the road that was yet to be traveled. Here's what I want to share with you this morning. I was in high school at the time and I remember the discussion. So in 1971, a Southern Leadership Conference put together a kind of a proposal. It got three million signatures. It would take almost another 10 years before Congress actually began to seriously consider making uh, this a holiday. It would then be voted on, finally, after a 15-year battle in 1983. And after it was voted on, it would take another three years to actually enact the holiday. And the reason I share this with you is this. It gives you a sense of the depth of not only where we've come from as a nation, but also how far we have to go that it took 16 years for us to honor a man who gave his life for the cause of racial injustice, for civil rights, for the inequities, and he did so in a way that was nonviolent. This is a man who was stabbed at a book signing and still didn't have a bad thing to say about the man who stabbed him. And I think what I really believe right now is most necessary is we've reached a time in our country where if we don't stop and start appreciating one another for who we are and for the value that we have as fellow human beings, regardless of the color of our skin or where we live or what we have or don't have, if we won't start there with a common discourse that is kind and gentle and recognizes the value of every single person who's made in the image of God, all of us, 
that I think we've taken a step backwards. And I have to admit, 2020 was one of those years, it's like, Lord, have we just gone backwards? And so I want to strongly just encourage you to, to take up some conversations, some new ones. Seek somebody out with whom maybe you don't know much about where they came from, what their life is like. Someone who doesn't share your skin color. And ask them the questions, what can I do to help? How can I be used to continue this march that we have to get through for complete equality across every boundary that has been put up by man in our society? And so as you celebrate tomorrow, find something to do for someone else. Look at the value of someone else through their eyes and just simply start some conversations so so we can push forward and we can end what still today for many is injustice. Would you stand and we're going to pray together. Father, we recognize the legacy of Dr. King and we pray that, Lord, we would not stop seeking to do good. Or we wouldn't think we've already arrived, and we certainly wouldn't go backwards. And so, Lord, we pray against those lingering elements of racial injustice wherever they are in our country, and there are many. And we pray for those that have been affected, Lord, their lives have been forever transformed by some thing of evil, some hand some words. Lord, help us to be gentle and loving and kind and to see people the way you see us. And Lord, you, Jesus, said in your prayer in John 17 that your wish was that we would be one as you and your Father are one. Lord, we ask you to make it so. Make us one. Change people's hearts. And Lord, we ask that you would watch over our nation as we inaugurate a new president. Lord, we pray against those who would do evil, cause harm. Lord, we pray for those that are in the medical uh, arena right now fighting this virus. God, would you protect them? Talk to so many, Lord. They're just worn out and tired. And so, God, heal our land. Lord, heal our land. We just simply ask you to touch us with your love, with your care, and your concern. Bless us now as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you take your seats and take out your Bibles? As we continue this journey with Jesus, we have now come to his final trip to Jerusalem. And as we pick up in verse 31, here in a message I've entitled, The Passion and the Power of Jesus I think it's so important for us right now to stop and take pause of what Jesus says as he is about to give his life a ransom for us. What instruction would he give to his disciples? What would he say in in the final trip up the road that comes from Jericho to Jerusalem, this 18-mile journey on a dirt road? What is it that the Lord Jesus would say 
to his disciples. Verse 31, Jesus continues, and then he took the twelve aside and said to them, now this is important, because he is now going to speak specifically to the disciples. And so these are the guys that are going to be, you might call them the elders of the early church. You could say they're the church planters of that day and time. They're going to be the ones who ultimately, almost all of them will be martyred for their faith. These are the men that we'll turn to when you turn to the Gospel of Matthew. He was there. When we read Luke's Gospel, he was there. John's Gospel, he was there. Mark's Gospel, he was there. These are the people who were with Jesus as he speaks these words. And he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now that in and of itself means very little. It's just another place that Jesus is instructing them to go. But then he qualifies why. Why they're going to Jerusalem. That all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Jesus tells them, guys, this whole journey is a foregone conclusion in the eyes of heaven. My father and I knew that this day would come. We mapped this whole thing out and we spoke through the Old Testament prophets, the guys that you and I would call the Old Testament authors, men like Zechariah and Daniel and Isaiah and David, Malachi. Those men were not speaking for themselves. They were speaking for God in that sense. The words that they authored were not from men. They were from heaven. And Jesus now says something to the disciples that should begin to get you thinking. Would have stopped the disciples in their tracks and it would have caused them to think about what they knew to be true about Messiah. He says in verse 32, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and be mocked, and insulted, and spit upon, and they will scourge him and kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. He's speaking of his own mission, why he's going to Jerusalem. And notice he is extremely specific about what that mission is about what the core of the gospel is. The core of the gospel is Jesus Christ, God's own son, died on Calvary's cross substitutionarily for you and for me, for all who would believe. He died in your place and my place on Calvary's cross, paying the price for my sin so that my sins would be erased, so that God could receive me into his own home, that I could live with him forever, provide for me eternal life, and to seal that, he was raised three days later, showing that we would have eternal life. But those were not New Testament truths. Those are spoken of in the Old Testament. The prophets had been very clear what Messiah would come to do. And so Jesus is providing proof of who he is, how we can know that, and why he's the only answer. 
we're going to Jerusalem to finish what I and my father started. Because God, before the foundations of the world, loved you. Before you were even born, he knew you. And he provided a way for you to know him before you were ever looking for him. And so Jesus is telling him, look, we're going to finish the gospel message. Inside of a week, he will say it is finished. It's done. But notice what he says, something that would have been a little bit foreign to them. Because up to this point, who's been dogging Jesus? Have you heard anything about Gentiles at all? It's been the Pharisees, hasn't it? The Pharisees, the Jewish religious leader, have been Jesus' primary enemy. They're the ones that have been speaking out against him. They're the ones that have declared that he was blaspheming. They're the ones that religiously, according to the Jewish law, had the right to put Jesus to death because he was a blasphemer. And that particular punishment would have been death by stoning. Notice what it says. But I'm not going to be killed by the Pharisees who've been hounding us, guys. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles. They're going to be the ones that will put me to death. And they're all going to say, what? Hadn't it been the Pharisees that are following us around? Aren't they the ones that are mad at you? Now remember, these guys are all Jewish. They're going to say, huh? But they understood. Notice Jesus actually says that in a different way. They understood none of these things. This is the disciples, the brilliant ones, the guys who ultimately will author the book that we are now reading. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things that which are spoken. You see, from heaven's perspective, what Jesus was about to do was inevitable. First, we see the inevitable in the life of the disciples and Jesus as they now head towards Jerusalem. All these things were spoken of previously. This was not new news. This particular news and this plan had been available to the Jewish people for a very long time. You could have gone back to the writings of David a thousand years earlier. You could have gone back to the writings of Isaiah, which we're studying right now on Thursday nights. Isaiah 50, 51, 52, 53. And in those short chapters, there are 44 different pieces of information specifically told about what would happen to Messiah. You see, this wasn't an accident. Jesus not speaking, Jesus being beaten, Jesus being lifted up, Jesus being from Bethlehem, Jesus being who he said he was, Jesus crying from the cross, which he will, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, David said that would happen a thousand years earlier. And so Jesus is saying, look, guys, this isn't an accident. This is what I came to do. 
And you could go on and on and on. Everything from his resurrection to his ascension to ultimately his enthronement in heavenly glory to the prophet Joel saying that through him the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would come to the combining of the priesthood of Melchizedek in that the tribe of Levi, the priestly line, and the tribe of David, the kingly line, in one person would come together. These things were all told to them before they happened. And so many more pieces of information. When you study the Old Testament, there are at least 485 pieces of specific information. And that information is about one guy. And the information about that one guy, we're going to meet a guy who recognizes that in this parable that comes next. Why is that important? Because as you add detail upon detail, the greater number of specific things you say about an event or a person, the less likely it is that one person will actually fulfill those things. It's the law of compounding probability. So if you start saying things like Jesus is going to be lifted up on the cross, if you start saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem, if you start saying he's going to be beaten, if you start saying he's going to be bruised, if you start saying he's going to ascend into heaven, if you start saying he's going to be crucified, which hadn't been invented when that was spoken of by David the prophet or the prophet Isaiah, when you start saying those things, the more things you say the less likely it is that anyone could ever keep them all together and make them come to pass at a time in the future. And so Jesus says, this is not new news. The prophets told you these things in advance. What you're going to see happen, you already knew was coming. And so the beauty of all of this, when Jesus said these things, that would have been very difficult for somebody to prove. But it is no longer difficult for anybody to prove. Because we now have copies, you know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls, of all of this information, and it's been dated not by a bunch of Christians trying to make a case for it, but by a bunch of Jewish people who are not believers, that these things, that they have copies of what Isaiah said, that come from 186, 87 to 212 BC. That's 250 years before Jesus starts talking to the disciples about it. In other words, it is incontrovertible evidence that Jesus is telling them the truth about his Father in heaven and why he's there. You see, when you begin to look at what's happened there in Qumran, these 11 caves of which primarily the ones that we are most familiar with are caves 1 through 4, which we visit when we tour Israel. Inside of that particular cave was the great, of, great scroll of Isaiah found. There are only nine complete scrolls. Of the nine complete scrolls, two of them, are of the book of Isaiah, and the only fully complete one is the book of Isaiah. So all of these things that Isaiah said 
we now know for a fact were said before Jesus was ever on the earth. This is so important to us. So when Jesus says all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man, that's the title for Messiah that Daniel gave him. Shall be, will be, is going to be, without any doubt, accomplished. Jesus has said what the Bible says is true. What the prophet said is true. What God told you in advance is true. It's the proof, in other words, of prophecy. Like, this isn't a guess, guys. I'm not going to Jerusalem because the Pharisees, man, they've just been pressuring us all along and we got no choice. You know, we're going to get in trouble, so we're going there. No, Jesus was going to fulfill the will of his Father. What he came to earth to do, he came to give his life a ransom for our sin. It's why he came. And this is why the church cannot, must not, should not ever abandon our prime calling, which is to preach the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation to them who believe. That is our primary purpose. Because that is what we can do that leads to a change in someone's eternal destiny. That's what Jesus came to do. If we're little Christ, that's what Christian means. If we are supposed to be little pieces or images or little windows through which people can look to see Jesus, then what was Jesus about? He just told you to go fulfill absolutely everything that was said about himself, Messiah. And what was that? That he would give his life for all we like sin, like sheep have gone astray and every one of us has turned. You know who said that? Isaiah the prophet. Jesus came to fulfill that. My problem was sin. He fixed my problem. The road ahead was going to be very tough. Extremely difficult, especially for Jesus. I want you to think on this for a moment. Because you could look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and they're, they're fantastic to to gaze on when you look at it. And you imagine you know, some scribe sitting in a little tiny stone building, the, the city of Qumran is, I think, the largest single room that exists there right now in the archaeological site that's been excavated is about 15 by 20. We could put 10 of them up here on the platform. Imagine somebody hand-copying a 26-foot-long scroll of the book of Isaiah, letter by letter, and if you make a mistake, they throw the whole scroll away. The whole scroll. And they didn't go down to Office Depot to get paper either. They had to make their own parchments. They had to sew them together. And imagine somebody rolling that out and saying, there it is. That's the coming one. 
That's Messiah. The road was going to be rough, and Jesus now takes him on the first steps on that road. Verse 35. And then it happened. As he was coming near Jericho, remember he's coming from the north, from the Sea of Galilee. He's traveled about 35 miles south to Jericho, which sits about halfway down the Jordan River Valley before you get to the Dead Sea and before you make the ascent up this very long winding canyon that contains the road to Jericho, narrow, filled with small caves, places where people could easily hide. If you remember, the Samaritan man was on the same road. It was a place frequented by by robbers and thieves. It was where you went if you didn't want to be found. And oh, by the way, that road was the road that was transited by people like King Herod because he had a summer palace uh, in Jericho. It was also where the priests stayed when they were not on duty in the temple. So it was kind of a resort city. There's an oasis there. And it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. Now, before you immediately go off into a modern tangent, it's helpful and beneficial to realize that there were no social programs during that day and time. There there wasn't a homeless shelter anywhere. There were no government programs to take care of people who were misfortuned. Uh, there, There wasn't any societal help. There was nothing. And if you were blind and had lost your family... It was essentially a death sentence unless someone had pity on you. And so this man had been shown pity, shown some mercy, but he was still blind and he was still sitting on the edge of the road doing the one thing he could do, which is to simply ask others for help. We meet him. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. In other words, he was quite astute, as is very often the case with people who are blind. Their sense of hearing is greatly enhanced. They have to rely on it in a much greater way. And so here is this man who can't see, but he hears really well. And he hears the disciples. He hears the uproar of the multitude. And so they told him, notice this, how specific this is that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Not just Jesus, the name Yahushua, or God who is salvation, but he's from Nazareth. Everyone knew about Jesus in that region from Nazareth because he was the news. So it's one Jesus. It's not a Jesus. This isn't Simon Bar Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth. So that no one be confused, the man is told it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now in case that doesn't strike into your heart what it should, and he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, Yehoshua, God who is salvation, and son of David, the title that the Old Testament authors gave Messiah. Jesus, God who is salvation, son of David, who is Messiah, who is from Nazareth, which is the one Jesus everybody knew about. 
preaching a very specific Jesus. Notice what he asked for. Have mercy on me. He asked for mercy. He doesn't ask for grace first. He doesn't ask for forgiveness first. He asks for the one thing that everybody has to ask for first. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The very thing we just saw. Because mercy is acknowledging I have a problem. Mercy is me saying, if I get what I've earned, it's not going to be good. Mercy is me recognizing that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. Mercy is me acknowledging what God already knows. God, have mercy on me. Don't give me what I should get, which is an eternity separated from you. I should have to pay the price of my own sin. Please, please, please don't give me that. That's the cry of everyone's heart who has ever believed. That's an acknowledgement that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is an unrighteous, not one. And then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. This is how... Religious people often react. You're not doing it right. But he cried out all the more. Now I love this. Son of David, Messiah, anointed one, the one who can save God incarnate and human flesh. These were all things when you use that title, you're acknowledging what the Old Testament, the Torah, the Tanakh, the first five books plus the rest of the law and the prophets and everything else would have declared about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. He cried out all the more. And notice he didn't add anything. Son of David, have mercy on me. Not Son of David, where do I go to the new believers class? Son of David, can you point me to a good Bible expository dictionary? Son of David, you know, can you explain to me all the great doctrines of faith or systematic theology or something else? It's Son of David, Messiah, coming one. Please don't give me what I've deserved. Have mercy on me. And so Jesus stood still. I love this. Whenever you ask for mercy from the king, mercy you shall receive. Jesus was stopped in his tracks. I hear that. I know what you're saying. Let me acknowledge it. And commanded to be brought to him. And when he had come near to him, he asked him, what church do you go to? God doesn't say that. Did someone lay hands on you? Did, you know, what? Oh, there's nothing there. Doesn't ask him anything having anything to do with church, religion, a book, not even the Bible itself, because nobody had one at that time. Ask him. What do you want me to do for you? That is a personal invite from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords 
of a very specific kind. And he said, notice how he acknowledges who Jesus is, Lord. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord means master. In other words, he's saying Jesus, who is the son of David, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the only one that the Bible says can save anyone ever, to him I am saying you are Lord. And oh, by the way, his name is Jesus, God who is salvation. And he came from Nazareth. He is being uber specific about exactly one thing, and that is the message of the gospel. He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. You ever wondered why John Newton said I was blind, but now I see? John Newton wasn't actually blind, but he was spiritually blind. He was dead, but you'll see him in heaven. Amazing grace is still amazing grace. And it still makes people who are blind able to see. It's the simple message of the gospel. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Not do this, do that, be this, be that, join this, join that, go here, go there, talk to this person versus that. Jesus simply says to him, receive your sight, your faith has made you well. You are saved by grace through faith that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. None of us can boast about it. It is faith and faith alone in the one Jesus that saves anyone. That's why Jesus could say, I am the way and the truth. Amen. And the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That includes, it's not about what church you attend. It's not about what version of an English translation of a Bible you have. It isn't about whether you wear a tie or don't. If you're wearing shorts right now, you're still going to heaven. If you've got a tie on, you're still going to heaven. If you, you know, it, we put so much stuff and so much emphasis on things that are not important to the message of the gospel that pretty soon nobody can see the gospel. I think that's one of the greatest problems we face in our nation right now. The church has stopped being salt and light, and it's become something else. Or we call it salt and light because we're going to be you know, political activists. People don't get saved because of their political affiliation. They get saved because they believed on the only name of the begotten Son. That's the message of the church and the disciples. We can't lose sight of that. If we make disciples of all nations, which is the actual Great Commission, then those people have all of the other things in their life affected by the good news of the gospel. And so you think differently, you act differently, you care differently, you love differently. You are a better citizen, you are a better parent, you are a better husband, you're a better wife, you're a better son, you're a better daughter, all because you've believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it works. 
That's how it works, church. Please don't lose sight of that. Because we are being tested in our nation right now. And the church can stand right now if the church will get back to what actually matters as far as Jesus is concerned, which is the preaching of the gospel that leads on to salvation so that men's hearts can be transformed and changed as their minds are renewed. That will change things, literally. The prayer of a righteous person avails much, amen? But the only way you're righteous is because Christ has made you so. It all ties back to the gospel. Gospel living comes from someone who actually is saved. You cannot and will not ever live a gospel life without being saved. Oh, you may act out parts of it, but it's all internal. It's not external. You can't force that on people externally. It's something that happens to them internally. And so Jesus is saying to them, Immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying who? God. And all the people, when they saw that, they gave praise to God. When they saw someone genuinely saved by grace through faith, because Jesus simply said, you're in. You called me Lord. That's what I wanted to hear. You acknowledged who you are. That's why you ask for mercy. I hear that. It's one of those things that Billy Graham used to, used to say at his crusades. I see that hand way up in the... That's it. God sees that hand. God fully understands when people are making a genuine commitment by faith. And so you might say this guy is asking the right question. It's like, what, what's going on? And when he hears what's going on, That's Jesus. That's the Savior. I want to know him. I'm committing my life to him. For that man in that moment, much like it was for Felix and Agrippa, there in Acts chapters 24, 26, much like it was for Paul on the road to Damascus, what was Paul doing when he was on the road to Damascus? He's going to find Christians so that he can bring them back to Jerusalem so he can kill them. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That was the voice of Jesus. And Saul fell on his face. Lord, he said the same thing, didn't he? Lord, who are you? It's what we're to be about, church. Helping people recognize the simplicity of the gospel and leading them to knowing Jesus personally. That's the greatest thing you can ever do with your life is to preach Christ. Tell people about the coming one. Because he's coming again. He's going to be back. He said so, not me. I believe it. By faith, he is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Why don't we get ready for that? We have an inauguration. Pray for our outgoing president. Pray for our incoming president. Pray for the Congress. Pray for the Supreme Court. Pray for everyone. Pray for absolutely everyone. But pray 
that the gospel reaches their hearts. Can you imagine what would happen if every single person in America actually got saved? You think we'd be a different country? I know we would. I know we would. The church can do that. I'm not any good at politics. I stink at politics, okay? I stink at talking about it. I'm not good at very many things, but you know what I can do? I can preach the simple gospel. I think the Apostle Paul was pretty good at preaching the simple gospel too. Romans chapter 10. For Moses, verse 5, writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. In other words, if once you start on that journey of the law, you better do absolutely every bit of it. And you know what happened? Strangely, oddly, weirdly enough, nobody ever did all of it. And so it left him in trouble. But the righteousness of faith speaks this way. What did this man have? Faith. Could he even see Jesus? No. Could he read? No. He could hear. What did he hear? It's Jesus from Nazareth. It's the son of David. It's Messiah. I believe. It's what he said. Verse 8, Romans 10. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth, in your heart. What was the word that they preached? If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Doesn't say anything else. Doesn't give you anything else to do. Now other things will happen. You're going to find out, mm, oh, the Holy Spirit's going to come into you and speak to you, and you're going to, yeah, I probably should change that. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made. There it is. It's two things. It's believing and professing. It's just believing and doing what this man did. You see what he did? That's Messiah. I believe, and I confessed him as Lord. That's the gospel. That's it in a nutshell, church. And the only essential thing there was faith. That's it. That's all this guy had. He couldn't even see. He had no money. He didn't go to church. He was a beggar on the side of the road. But he was a saved beggar. A beggar that you're going to see in heaven. A beggar that got the greatest gift anyone could ever give him. The moment they said, Jesus the son of David, is almost here. And I pray that you'll take that message with you and just speak to people about Jesus. You don't have to be a theologian. You have to know a handful of things. You can walk them through the Old Testament. Say, look, this weird passage here in the book of Isaiah in chapter 51, 52, 53 it's, it's all talking about this guy. Did you know that that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls? And you, know, you start getting their mind going, well, who is that guy? His name's Jesus. Do you know him? Are you willing to call him Lord? It's that simple, church. That was the word of power that Hebrews chapter 1 speaks about. That's the gospel of God unto salvation that Paul wrote about. 
But that same God is the same one who created the universe and everything in it. That with the word of his mouth put billions of galaxies in space and then ordered them so that they stay in their space. So they don't crash into each other. That same God came incarnate in human flesh and met a blind man on the road to Jerusalem and said, that's all I needed to hear. Your faith has made you well. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. If you're here today, and maybe you've never invited Christ to come into your heart, I want to give you that opportunity today. We have two things going on. I'm going to pray with you right here and right now. We also have a prayer team in our prayer room. So after service, if you want to go sit down and pray with someone or have them walk you through the the simple gospel message, the Romans road, I would be happy to do that. But if you're here today and you want to know Jesus, we're going to bow our heads and our hearts right now. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord, and you're looking at this world saying, what's the answer? I want to tell you the answer is Jesus. And if you'll believe on him, you will be saved. You've heard the gospel. It's that simple. Christ came for you, died substitutionarily in your place. On Calvary's cross, he paid the price for your sin. He was buried in the grave, raised three days later. Not just for your salvation, but also your sanctification, your maturation, and your glorification. You will one day literally go to heaven. If that's you, as we bow our heads, would you just raise your hand right where you're at? I want to pray with you so that you can receive Christ's greatest gift you've ever I see that hand in the back. Praise the Lord. Saints, be praying. See that other hand in the back. Praise God. Anyone else? You just, you want to start this year fresh with a relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You want to say yes to Jesus and, and get this sinful monkey off your back. I see that hand too. Praise God. Anyone else? Anyone else? I see that hand as well. I see that hand in the back. I see that hand. Praise God. Just keep your hands up for a minute. We're going to pray together. I see that hand. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. It's the one that changes your eternal destiny. It's the one that you're crying out for mercy. For those that raise your hand, maybe, maybe you're here and you're still a little hesitant to raise your hand. God still hears your prayer. And so would you pray with us as we pray together with these that have their hands raised to receive Christ. And church, would you just echo these words? You've already done it. You've already believed it. But help them. Father in heaven, I believe that I am a sinner and I can't do a thing about it myself. Lord, I'm asking you to forgive my sin. Lord, I'm asking you to come into my life. I believe you died on Calvary's cross. I believe you paid the price for my sin. And I believe that you were raised three days later and that you live forevermore. And that one day I am going to step into eternity and live with you. And so God, we pray, I pray, as the body of Christ, that you would write our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. We would walk with you all of our days. Keep us from sin. 
Give us the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Praise the Lord. There are many of you kind of all over the sanctuary. If you need a Bible, we want to give you some study materials. Uh, We have a Get Started Growth Packet for you we'd like to give you. If you just go to the prayer room, we'll get you those things. Whatever you need, we'll get you tuned into our discipleship stuff online. Welcome to the family of God. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for these that, like that blind man, received you today. God, would you inscribe on their hearts your great plans. Lord, would you build up their faith even in this moment that they would know how to walk with you, that they'd flee sin and Lord, no longer be bound by it, that you paid the price for those things and they've been delivered from them. Lord, thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. Keep us steadfast and movable, always abounding in that labor, knowing that it is not in vain in you. Lord, help us to live gospel lives so that this world can know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.